Peace, peace, and welcome. I'm back with another uh, dope conversation ahead of us. Um, I met this good brother, Mr. Howard, through an organization called uh, School Board Partners. He's um, not only changing the world and uh, from East Baton Rouge, he looks incredibly fly while he does it. <laughs> um, I'm excited to get into his story, you know, what led him to public service, the type of issues he's really interested in moving forward in his town. And uh, we have a shared love for the 49ers. Maybe we'll, we'll jump in on that for a second. But, you know, we're also in a very critical time in our country. And uh, of all things that I think shine in the Black community, Mr. Howard is, is a great representation of that. So I'll get, we can get his thoughts on, you know, all of the current events related to George Floyd and what the response of the country should be, what he's seeing in this whole town. With no further ado, school board member Howard. First of all, thank you uh, so much for having me here. Um, it's an honor to meet other bro brothers um, doing the work and just really being a part of this, this movement of like representation and leadership. And I think the time is now um, more than ever for us to have a seat at the table and actually have a productive seat at the table and not just holding a seat at the table. Um, so it's an honor to be here. I'm excited to share my story um, and for your viewers to learn more about who I am and the work that I do. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So Tramel Howard, I, I pronounced your first name correctly, right? That is correct. Tramel Howard. Okay. Um, uh, so on your school board, are you called a commissioner or a trustee or school board member? How does it work? We are called school board members. Um, we have a nine-member board um, broken out by districts based off of the location that you live in in your particular city. Uh, well, in our city, in our case, Baton Rouge. Um, so, yeah, nine-member board broken out by districts, and I represent District 3, which is one of our largest districts um, and one of our largest minority districts. Um, majority of my district um, is is uh, housed by uh, African Americans. Um, so, been on the board for two years, um, and it's been a journey. <laughs> it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, and you're vice president now, right? I am. I was actually elected vice president my second week on the board, and then okay. my colleagues um, revoted for me for a second term. <laughs> Awesome. Um, earlier this year. Um, and again, I say it's it's been a journey. Um, elected leadership was not something that I desired per se. Um, it's just one of those paths that um, it was the right thing to do, I feel like. Um, and so here I am. Um, I never in a million years thought that I would be sitting on anyone's school board, um, yet alone operating as the vice president of the second largest school district um, in our state. Um, but like I said earlier, it's been a learning experience. Um, there's been a lot of trying times, um, and especially being, you know, young. Uh, I was the youngest elected board member ever in our history. Um, so just that, you know, that ageism that exists in the world. Um, but it's been a learning experience, but a good learning experience. And I've, I've really appreciated the support from my community. More specifically, my students, my former students are just thrilled that I sit on the school board. And I mean, literally every day they're calling, asking about, Mr. Howard, did this happen? What, you, what can you do to my teacher? I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. 
Um, it's, been a, it's been a rewarding experience specifically because of um, my students seeing someone who was um, in front of them as a teacher now in the position to make policy decisions that impact their education on a day-to-day basis. So more than the uh, more than anything, I'm honored to be in this role and I'm honored to represent um, my community and specifically my students. Yeah, that's what's up. Uh, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Baton Rouge. Um, I started off my school um, tenure in East Baton Rouge Parish Schools. Um, I went to East Baton Rouge Parish Schools all the way up until ninth grade. Um, and then I 10th grade, I transferred to a parochial school um, that is still in East Baton Rouge Parish, still in my district. So I've been going to schools in my district um, for all of my, my life. So it's really cool to now be on this side um, as the actual school board member representing my district. Um, Baton Rouge is, is my heart. I love this city. I love this place. And I'm just doing anything that I can to plant seeds to make sure that um, students coming up in my community have the same opportunities that I had growing up and that, you know, we really allow education to change the life trajectory of so many kids and so many students because I know what it did for my life. Um, and so I'm, I'm just hoping and praying that everything and every decision that I make is in um, the best interest of kids to, to have the same opportunity that I had to utilize education as a, as a building block, a building block to success, a building block to financial freedom, a building block to opportunity. That's what's up. Talk a little bit about your, your home situation. Well, you have siblings or you're... Well, yeah, did... well, um, I grew up in a single parent home. Uh, my mom was uh, got pregnant with me when she was 17 years old. Um, so she was still in high school. Um, and, and that's a story in itself. Um, my mom sacrificed so much so that I can have the opportunity to have discussions like this, have the opportunity to, to share my platform with others. Um, and she has been my biggest supporter and my biggest fan throughout this. Um, I have a younger brother and sister, as well as some um, additional siblings um, that are not my mom's kids, but my dad's kids. Um, but my grandparents played an important role in making sure that my mom had the support to, to give me the opportunities. Um, I like to tell people all the time that I, I grew up hood rich. Like, I know we were in poverty but I never really wanted for anything. Like I, I had the latest shoes. I, I always had food on the table um, and not really understanding at that moment that my mom was sacrificing so much. Um, she didn't have a college education, so she was probably making the bare minimum as it relates to finances, but she never ever um, let her situation influence or affect my life. And I'm forever grateful for the sacrifices that she made and the sacrifices that my grandparents made to give her that additional village that it takes to raise a child. Um, and so, yeah, uh, me and my mom are like best friends to this day. Um, I mean, I can go to her with anything that's going on in my life, specifically um, holding her off when people try to attack me. <laughs> publicly. <as well. laughs> because, you know, Mama Bear, I don't play that. Um, and so it, it's really interesting to watch her. Like, I'm like, no, mom is fine. Like I'm, I'm fine. You don't have to, you don't have to engage with folks when they, you know, are attacking um, for whatever reasons. But um, you know, so yeah, my family is, is, is my pride and joy. Everything that I do is to ensure that the younger folks in my family see that you, no matter your situation, you can make it. Um, and my grand, my grandfather had a ninth grade on um, education, and he's like my hero. Um, you know, he 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 didn't understand much about education because he stopped going to school in ninth grade. But he knew that education was the way to change your um, or shift your outcome. 
Um, and so he was very um, instrumental in making sure that I, I focused in school, cared about school, and really used school or utilized school as an opportunity to, to get to a level of success that, you know, that they all desire for me. Um, they pushed me to to do all the things that I thought I wanted to do, to take part in all of the activities that I thought I wanted to. And again, they made so many sacrifices that now I'm just realizing. Um, and so I'm forever indebted to my grandparents and to my mom um, for for the things that they've done to 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 help me get to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you um you you got some good support and structure. And it, were you were you were you? And it sounds like that you got a lot of emphasis on school. Were you a strong student? Yeah, I mean, you know. I tell I used to tell my kids this all the time, like when they were complaining about work and you know, all these. I absolutely love school from head start on. Like I never, my mom never had to come to school to to you know correct behaviors and all. I absolutely love school, and I, I think I, you know it just was it was just one of those things that like I used to play school at home, like I played the teacher. So with my siblings, and so like school was just always something that I loved. And, you know, so when, when kids just like, oh, Mr. Howard, I don't want to do this. I'm like, man, when I was in school, like I absolutely loved it. Um, so I was a strong student. I graduated my fifth grade class as a salutatorian. <laughs> I always yeah. talk about that story because it, <laughs> it just me feel so proud to, to, you know, to just get all these academic awards and like, you know, really feel like I was like doing something um, as it relates to education. And then I went on to a magnet program after sixth grade. So I just always loved school always um, enjoy being in school. And, you know, I, I, I try to instill it in, into other folks that, you know, at a very young age, you know, when you, you want better for your life and better for your situation. And so you have to do the necessary things to make some sacrifices, um, you know, to, to make sure that you get to this point. And so, yeah, I always love school. I, I would, I'm what people probably would call the teacher's pet. All my teachers love me. So, um, you know, it's, it, it was a, I had a pleasant experience in school. Nice. Um, where'd you go to college? So I went to undergrad at the university of Louisiana Lafayette, shout out to, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Okay. Um, then I went to law school at Southern university, um, the Southern university as we so graciously say, okay. um, in Louisiana. Um, and yeah, so, um, again, I, I've always loved school. Um, I had a great undergrad experience. I had a phenomenal law school experience. Um, and both of these institutions to this day have played, uh, a tremendous role in, in where I am today. Um, my chancellor from law school actually called me, um, last week just to do a wellness check. And so like, I just, that level of love that you receive at historical black college just is just a second to none. Mm. And so I'm very grateful for the continued support of my institutions. Um, even, you know, in the work that I do now. Mm. Yeah. You educated. you got a law degree, <laughs> all <of> that, <laughs> you know, just a little educated. but again, I think it goes back to, to my grandfather in ninth grade uh, with his ninth grade education he always told me like you, you you continue to to get more and you continue to gain knowledge and you continue to um, ensure that you have the tools that no one can take away from you. And, and education is that tool. No one can ever, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter how you look, they can never take away um, the education that you've received. And it really sets you up um, to be in, in some places that, you know, we're not sometimes welcomed in. And that's unfortunate. That's an unfortunate reality. But because of education, you know how to really navigate and maneuver in this very um, 
crazy world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was actually just thinking about that. You know, speaking this speaking this craziness. Um, so I think it's, I think it's dope that uh, you um, you committed yourself to education. You you got you know you furthered your education, and now you are uh, making policy on behalf of the community that you grew up in. I think that um, you sound like you're very very committed to the state of Louisiana um, and your community, and. And you know we've been going through a lot as a country, right? It was like first first COVID happened, and then we all went to shelter in place. And uh, as a fellow policymaker, that whole rollout was like mm-hmm. I, I, it was hard for a lot of us, right? Extremely um, um And then uh, there was you know the murder of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm what, yeah. Say it again. I'm all right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's 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 the tone in, in Baton Rouge right now? What's what's going on there? You know, um, that the week of, of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's and Ahmad was really it was a heavy week. Um, it was it was heavy to be black in America. It was heavy to be a black man in America. It was heavy to be someone who, who wants to instill into the future generations that there is hope when time after time after time after again, that hope keeps getting knocked down. Um, and it's, it's been so unfortunate and for, for, for a long time, I didn't really have the words to express how I was feeling. I cried multiple nights. Um, cause you know, here where I am from, we had our own situation with Alton Sterling a few years back. And so, like, you know, we're still going through the trauma of that situation because no one was charged with his murder. I mean, it was clear as day that it was murder. Um, and so to keep reliving these traumatic experiences as a black man on camera, it's it's tiring. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. And, and especially frustrating um, when you find yourself like a part of the system, quote unquote, because um, as elected members, like we are absolutely a part of the system that has historically, um, you know, historically just underserved us and underrepresented us. And so it's like you get it on two folds. It's like, man, we do all of these things every day to um, maintain status quo. But like, what are we really doing to make sure systemic racism is not occurring in the field that we focus in every day so while it was a knee on george floyd's neck um in minnesota there has been countless knees on the necks of african-american students in education that we as now people who are working to fight against that it's just tough it's a, it's a tough it's a tough spot to find yourself in and just like some of my constituents, I've been mad as hell and angry and frustrated and not really having the answers. Um, so it, it's tough. We've had protests here in Baton Rouge, very um, peaceful protests and very, uh, you know, matter of fact, getting to what we desire as it relates to police reform in our city. But, you know, like I, I don't judge the level of how people protest because who you know i can't be the one to tell people how to express their anger and to be black in america you have some built-up anger in you based off of the way america has treated us in a country that we built for free um and so it's been tough um and and bringing it 
you know, whole like bringing it all to where I am living in in Baton Rouge right now, we have a school, um, Lee Magnet High School, that's named after a Confederate general. And we have been a, uh, one of my board members wrote an open letter to the school board to ask to rename this particular school. And we actually had a board member, another one of my colleagues, get on TV and talk about how we need to learn our history. And if we knew our history, we would know that Robert E. Lee was someone who freed the slaves. He inherited all of these slaves and he just freed them into this open free land. And, you know, to, to, to have people that you serve with still have this mindset in an 80% African-American school district, it's just problematic. So, America, we have some work to do. Um, and I just really think it's time for people, specifically people who benefit from pri- privilege, to sit down, shut up, and listen to what, how we experience this world as as Black Americans. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a tough couple of weeks, but, you know, we're here to fight the good fight. And yeah. I tell people all the time, you know, I can disagree to agree in a sense of respectability politics, but one thing I will not stand for and ever be silent on is racism. Um, I will speak on it. I will call out silence is violence. I will call out systems of privilege. And, you know, sometimes that's not um, respected in the political landscape, but we have we have been given too many opportunities to... Um, to be in some of these spaces and we've been silent. So now we have to be louder than ever and really make sure that our voices are reflective in what's happening in this, in this country. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but it's, it's kind of crazy. I don't want to rush over that 80% African-American district and Robert E. Lee freed the slaves. Yeah. Robert E. Lee freed the slaves. I mean, wow. It, it was, hold on, you I'm know, gonna, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I mean, all right. So I want to get. I don't want to give. I don't want to give ignorance too much power either, right? But um, but uh, it's an interesting story with the state of Louisiana itself, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've been. I, so I went to the first time I went to a the first and only time I went to a, a plantation. Um, a former slave plantation was in Louisiana. It was like this tour that you take out in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. it was like a very charged experience for me, right? Because, you know, um, we all like, you know, I've had my issues with um, issues with the police or, you know, uh, discriminatory behavior or like mm-hmm. straight up like whatever. But uh, going back to see where it all happened was like a very charged emotional experience for me, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in Louisiana, you know, like the, like the, the, as you know, I'm saying things that you already know, um, like New Orleans being a slave port and it being the birthplace of jazz and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, all these cultural innovations that came out of, out of, out of New Orleans, but it having this, it being, you know, a, a conservative state with a lot of black people there, um, people very, very committed to the legacy of Robert E. Lee. And so like my, my, one of my first times visiting uh, New Orleans, and you're not in New Orleans, you're in the capital, right? But this is like, I haven't had the right. privilege of going to Baton Rouge. 
there's like a, there was like this huge statue in the middle at the, in the St. Charles with Robert E. Lee on the top of it. And I'm yep. like, I'm like, how does a city 60% black have a huge statue? <laughs> like, I didn't get it, you know? I didn't get it. And uh and when the mayor, the white mayor took it down, Mitchell Landry, I think his name Mitch is. Landry. Mm-hmm. I was like recently, you know? Mm-hmm. So like the the mentality there, I think it's like it's so crazy to somebody from California. Like, whoa, these people are really out here banging for E. Lee in twenty twenty. Like, I mean, it, it's it's so. I just don't understand in twenty twenty. Like, why are we having conversations related to symbols of Confederacy? And and I, what I really just is mind boggling to me is that you know, the supporters of this particular, oh, supporting history and heritage and X, Y, and Z. But what does that history and her- heritage represent? And so that's that's one one aspect of it. Like it's, it's symbols of oppression, it's symbols of slavery, it's symbols of like traumatic racism, it's symbols of all of these negative things that have played out in our country over time. But then when you just, you know, bring it back in, like you are a policymaker on a board in a public school system that's responsible for making decisions for these students. So if that's your mindset, it's going to be reflective in the policy decisions that you make. And so like we have to get past these symbols of oppression representing history when we, we if we tell the truth, the history that it represents is not reflective of the land of the free and the home of the brave, as you quote unquote, like to so graciously sing all the time. And so if we're talking about liberty and justice for all, like that history is not reflective of liberty, justice for nobody, specifically for my black uh, brothers and sisters in this country. And so, you know, I'm on a mission to tell the truth and shame the devil, as my grandma would say, (laughs) Um, because it's just ridiculous that we're even having these conversations in 2020. But again, the 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 landscape of the country, the landscape of America, we see it playing out um, in our face right now. And I think for the like the murder the, after George Floyd was murdered, I think that um, you know people always ask like, does it feel different? Is something different about this time? Um, and to me, it does feel different. And I think the reason that it feels different is because of the timing. So because of for the first time in, in history, and at least more recent history, America was put at a standstill and sit down by COVID. And so every single thing that's happening around the world, we are like having 24 hours to be vigilant around that. So while we as black folks have been experiencing this for a very long time, people haven't been able to sit down and listen because their powers and privileges and priorities were more important than social issues that were going on in the world. So right now they have an opportunity to actually see all of this play out in front of them. They can't leave out to go to work because work is at home. Like all of these things are playing out in the world right in front of us. And I think COVID was a gift and a curse for that because it gives America a time to see that the things that are uh, trivial to you are really life or death for other folks. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that this time is different, but then again, you see what happened in Atlanta over the weekend. So we're just constantly fighting. Um, to let our voices be heard. And like people like often say, like America should be thankful that all we want is equality and not revenge because this country has been truly disrespectful um, to black folks. And we just wake up every day 
Um, we entertain the world. We showcase our talents for the world to see. Um, and 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 not much has changed. And so we need we need to really flip it all over and start over. But you know, I'm here to, to do what I can to to ensure that education ju- educational justice occurs uh, through policy. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I want to get into some of that. And you know, just for reference' sake, the incident you're talking about was the 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 young man that was uh, young unarmed black man that was killed um, outside of Wendy's, and yep. they and they burned the Wendy's down. Yep. And um, you know, as protesters, as a response, maybe not necessarily quote unquote protesters, angry citizens, as a response, burned down the Wendy's that um, the young man was was killed leaving. And um, I mean. It- and I, if I could just for two seconds touch on like, because oftentimes people let when situations like what happened in Atlanta occur, the thing that they want to talk about is the burning down of the Wendy's, like the symbolism of the Wendy's. And when you're really missing a bigger picture about what led to that as it relates to like the anger and frustration that's been built up. But let's be very clear. America was not created on this. Let's just go rally out and be, you know, so quiet and just get this new land and discover. This country was discovered after <laughs> your boy, CC, as I refer to him as, <laughs> and just basically took over someone else's, like basically stole land from the Native Americans. And so like this whole idea that everything has to be peaceful and that we get to a point of like, um, justice through just being so proper and, and silent and, and that changes the world. That's not how this world was founded. Now, I'm not recommending people go burn down buildings in their community, but I'm also saying like we have to have an honest conversation about where we are and how we got here in order to understand the pain and frustration that people are really dealing with as we go through these different situations. Yeah, and no, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, I mean, I think, I think you, you, uh, you, somewhat understood it when you said stole because you know and i know you know the case with like uh um uh, genocide and and murder and Mm -hmm. um you know the complete annihilation of um entire communities and and after they learned how to work the land from the people you know so um uh and that happened with not just uh, Columbus, but, but several others that uh, came over to the to the New World, and and yeah, so you know the 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 Nat Turner response, right? Um, it is so I want I want I want I want to talk about symbolism, right? Versus because uh, you talked about the symbol of Ely, and and mm-hmm. and we may disagree on this, and it'd be interesting to see what the conversation goes, but. But in response, I'm seeing people uh, that that sympathize with the need for change, advocating for symbolic change. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what's the difference between symbolic change and 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 trans and transformative change? And so for someone like me, who has been uh, consistently confronted with uh, an achievement gap issue. Mm-hmm. You know, affecting black children, right? Um, I'm kind of over the symbols. At the same time, during my term on the school board, all the media attention I got was over symbols. Like I, I replaced the Pledge of Allegiance with quotes from black women, and like that people like flipped out, right? That mm-hmm. Breitbart wrote about that, Fox News covered it, right? And then we 
had issues with uh we tried to cover up this mural that had mm-hmm. dead Native Americans and slaves, and that was like all over the news, right? Symbolic gestures get all these attentions, you get all this attention. And um, but the the transformative stuff would would be, you know, 40 acres in a mule. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so I, I started joking. I was like, oh, it should be 40 million in the bins. I was like, that's my new joke. It should be <laughs> 40 million in the bins. That's happy. <laughs> um, so so in terms of the types of suggestions that you're seeing right now, like what uh what types of reforms that's been coming up in the in the conversation, the national mm-hmm. conversation, do you think uh, are worth pursuing? Um, so first, first thing I would say is that I think, um, and to answer your question about symbolic change versus tra- transformational change, I, I believe that we have to take a step back and realize that it can be a both-in approach. I, for example, what happened in D.C., the Black Lives Matter. Um, mural that was painted on the streets um, in D.C. I think that that's that's symbolic change, but I believe that some things needs to be right in people's face to see over and over and over. Yeah, that was again. Powerful. I like that. We did it I in the city. We did it here too. But can, oh, great. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get in Baton Rouge soon. But I think it's important for people to see. And so while there was a lot of people that came out and said, "Oh, well, this may be um, just like a band aid or whatever," um, I think that that we have to get away from the either or approach and realize that symbols matter, which is why there are uh, so many people trying to um, keep these symbolic symbols of oppression up because they, they just love the symbols or whatever. So they're paying attention to symbols. So I think we can do both in, we can have symbols, we can wear our black lives matter. We can talk about all of these things. And then on the policy side. So I, I, I understand the whole idea of defunding the police. So many people disagree with the the way it's presented of defunding the police, but I absolutely understand what it means because in my state, we have defunded education, we have defunded healthcare over and over again. And what we have done is take resources from those two institutions and put them in other places to... Uh, save budget holes or to to close budget holes or to do all of these things. So when people say defund the police, like when that's the, like the the spectrum of the large audience, I agree because all you're doing is taking money that would typically go to police and putting it into other programs that will increase public safety. And so like defund versus abolishment has to be the conversation. No one is, I don't think no one means to abolish the police because we know that for certain areas of public safety, like police are necessary. But in the current state that we're living in, like we've tried police reform, we've tried body cameras, none of this seems to be truly working. So when you say something as, um, to me, powerful as defundment, like, first of all, people start listening that were not truly listening before. And, you know, people start to put things in motion that will have a larger impact than just police reform. Because we thought here in Louisiana and all in other places that body cameras will be the answer to ultimate police reform. And we see now that the first thing that happens when an incident of this nature occurs, either the body camera falling off, it takes us six months to get the footage. Like it, it, it hasn't worked as a truer form. So defundment means like, hey, we're going to take money away from you, 
to give to community programs, to build up community pride so that folks will, you know, you know, do things and have the resources to connect to things that ultimately lead to a more round, more well-rounded community. And so I think defunding the police isn't as a, as a step in the right direction. Um, I think that it should be um, talked about um, and people should realize that defundment does not mean um, abolishment and that defundment is necessary in order to um, really invest in our community so that they can have the resources, so that we can have the resources necessary to be um, thriving um, individuals. I mean, we all want to thrive, not just survive. And so our communities for so long have just literally been surviving and now it's time for us to thrive. So I think defunding the police um, is a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one of one of the um, what? So, so I've been critical. I've been on the camp of like, you know, I want. I, I don't believe in that until it happens, right? And um, the reason why I say that is because, like, I, I've been on. The, I've been pushing the symbol change, and I and I'm still doing that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't. I don't have any big issues with the sentiment around defunding the police. But the the way I'm saying in, in the facetious facetious way, like forty million in the bins, it's kind of like it's like it's like reparations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and, and and so all the we, we've seen this this corporate response with statements and contributions and a reallocation of city money, right? But uh, but families, like you know, what what happened to the black family through mass incarceration through discriminatory housing policy to discriminatory hiring policy through a disinvestment in education like the you know the family was dismantled mm-hmm. and and families need to be repaired and economic independence um, is something that the the country i think can help advance through checks right yeah. like cut oh, the I, check. <laughs> listen they they fund all kind of other programs other things um that are targeted at a specific group because i mean basically every every large group whose uh america has wronged they've they've done something specific to that group to make it right except for black people so we don't even say no more like america has righted a lot of their wrongs in other communities um in some form of repayment reparation but they have not done that for the African-American community. And you can do the research yourself to figure out how. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it, it is June of 2020. We're, we're headed into the summer. Um, you've been on the school board uh, two years. You're vice president. And we've gone through this whole it's, half the year is like not even done yet. You know, <laughs> and it's been 2020 has been like, wow. Right. A year. Um, what, what is like, how are you approaching the next few months? Like, what are you thinking about, um, in terms of your policy work and we can get into some other areas of your life too, your, your, your day yeah. job also after that. Yeah. So as it relates to, um, what's happening in East Baton Rouge Parish school system, um, one of the biggest things we will actually be electing a new superintendent on Thursday. Um, so a lot of my energy and time has been um, interviewing candidates and interviewing interviewing folks to see how 
they can bring true transformations to our school district. So on Thursday, we will be um, selecting a new superintendent. Um, I've been very clear um, that I will be voting for Dr. Nakia Talents, which is one of our finalists um, for su superintendent. Um, you know, it's just a time and place that I believe. And so this has been a conversation that's come up in our, um, in our, in our district a lot. We represent um, 80% African-American students, um, about 10% um, minor uh, other minority students, and then about uh, another 10% of white students. I believe that a leader and a superintendent should reflect the district that they make up. And far too many times, our kids in our district, they don't see teachers who look like them. Um, they don't see administrators who look like them. Um, they don't see advocates who look like them because a lot of you know, education stakeholders are not reflective of the kids that they um, represent and advocate for. Um, so representation matters. And I believe that in, in our leader, we should have one who is reflective of our student population. And not only that, um, the message is important, but the messenger is just as important. So, um, yeah, I believe that, you know, that's 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 been my focus is, is really getting folks to understand why representation matters um, today, yesterday, and will matter forever as it relates to really transforming the school district. Um, we have been working um, also on um, this. I think another thing that COVID um, kind of told us, uh, gave us a visual around is the inability for some families to have connectivity as it relates to internet access, as it relates to device access. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out what we can do as a large school district to um, bridge the gap. Because what we know from COVID is that the learning loss, specifically for minority students, specifically from students from low-income families, is going to be widened because of COVID. Um, and and that's, that's a reality, and that's just, just how we need to approach it. Um, there was already a large achievement gap between those subgroups and other students. Um, so the, the achievement gap has further widened because of COVID. So we need to address the learning loss. Um, so that's been something that I've been really focused on, trying to figure out what steps we can take um, to ensure that we address the learning loss to the best of our abilities and plan going forward to have additional resources available to address the learning loss. So that's been my, my primary focus um, as we go through and prepare for the next school year. I do believe that with a new superintendent, we'll be able to just get a, a restart, um, kind of seeing things from an outside perspective to see what things we need to change as far as efficiency are concerned, to just make sure that education works for everyone. Um, everybody always talks about all and all of these things, but if we're true, um, truly being honest with ourselves, systems, specifically systems in education, have, been, have not served Black and Brown students the way it's served our white um, affluent students. It has not served low-income families the way it's um, served affluent families. Um, so yeah, we just have to start telling the truth and figuring out how we can plant seeds daily that will eventually blossom into a garden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an exciting time when you, um, I mean, if you get the superintendent person you want, it's exciting. But when, it, when a new person comes in, there's like some new energy. And, new energy. Uh, yep. There's like some things to kind of, you know, there's some adjustment that happens. There's new conversations that come up um, and, uh, and you know, you to set a new course. Um, what do you do outside of 
the school board role? What's your day job? So I work for the Education Trust. Um, the Education Trust is a national nonprofit organization. We specifically focus on educational equity as it relates to low income and black and brown students. Um, so our everyday focus is to ensure that policy is equitable and that it's equitable specifically for that subgroup of folks. Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the a lot of times there is a underrepresented voice for black and brown students and low income students. And so we work hard to ensure that policy um, that districts and states and, and nationally is uh, adopted is uh, beneficial to those uh, subgroup of students. It's it's phenomenal work. Uh, I enjoy the work that we do as an organization at Education Trust. I also just enjoy having two um, two foot two feet. <laughs> I say two foot <laughs> two feet in the battlefield because I do this as an elected member, but I also do it as an advocate. And so every day, every single day, I wake up thinking about Black and Brown students and students from low income families. And that's what I fight for as a member of my school board. And that's what I fight for as a member of the Education Trust family. And every single day, I want education to work for every single student um, in this country. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I hope that my work shows. And I hope that my legacy will be fighting for educational freedom for uh, students, specifically my marginalized students. And are you, are you on back to your school board? Are you on four year terms or two years? We are on four year terms. Yes. Okay. So you're up in 2022. So up in 2022, but I, yeah, up in 2022, the election I think will be November of 21, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I, literally the days run together. Um, so when it's time to start thinking about what's next and if I'm running again and all those things, uh, my campaign manager will be probably calling. <laughs> right, right. What was it? So to to touch a little on that before we wrap up too, just like the the process for you to decide to run. Talk 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 a little bit about what that decision making process was like, and then I want to get into your experience actually with the campaign. Yeah. So deciding to run, I never ever 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 ever. <laughs> wanted to run for office. I never wanted to be a politician. I never wanted to do any of those things because um, in my mind, like I would have to stop being who I was to like really be a politician. Cause you know, we talked about their respectability politics and not being, not like I was just this wild Joe in the streets, but I really enjoy um, having a good time. I really enjoy um, just getting up every day and not having like news media and all these people are trying to write articles about you. Like I, that was, that was a lot. And so when I thought about a politician, that's exactly what I thought it would be. Um, but I was a teacher. Um, after law school, I actually joined Teach for America. And I started teaching seventh grade English in Ruleville, Mississippi. And that very first day in the classroom in Ruleville, Mississippi, I knew that teaching was where I was supposed to be. Education was where I was supposed to be. It was just a joy that you know, like they say, like when you find things that you're supposed to be involved with or you find or you interact with things that you're supposed to be involved with, it's just a feeling that you can't describe. And that's how I felt in my first in the classroom. I just can't de- describe the feeling of um, hope, the feeling of inspiration, the feeling of opportunity, and just the feeling of, of belonging um, somewhere and really feeling like you're making a difference. Um, so I knew that would be an education. Fast forward, came back home to Baton Rouge, uh, taught at 
Kindle Work Science and Technology. And let me just tell you, that place changed my life for the better. Um, the interaction that I had with those students. Um, my first year of like teaching was was just one of the, the best years of my life. And I was surrounded by a support system that was grounded in the work, grounded in making sure that students felt loved and safe in an environment. And it was just phenomenal. And so I just continue to figure out how can I do more to impact the students who I saw every day. Um, so my during the first summer, I had an internship at the Department of Education and we were having a meeting about something. And I asked the question about who had been a teacher or like what was their experience that they brought into the work. And only one person um, raised their hand. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. Like we're here making all of these policies related to teaching and no one has had any direct experience with like what happens in the school system or what happens in school. And, like, you know, you had all these business minded people and I was like, this is just weird. And so I was like, you know, in order for me to really impact change based on my experience, I now have to get a seat at that table so that I can, you know, understand, um, you know, these decisions that are made and like give a fresh perspective of why I think or how it would play out in the actual classroom. Even though I was a very novice teacher, I still had that experience of being in a classroom, but I still didn't think that that was through elected office. So fast forward again, I went to a um, leadership training and it was specifically targeted at young African-American men and women teachers who were um, interested in policy and elected leadership. And when I went to that conference, I just left with a spirit of hope, a spirit of determination, and a spirit of a drive to, to do something else to help my students who I saw every day. So I came back, and next thing you know, I was running for school board. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the race, like, what was the, how many contenders? What was the outcome? What happened? So I you ran. That was the bit. That was, that's what I, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> you won your first race, right? First I did. Yeah. So first time out. Um, I lost my I'm, first race. Oh, see. I still to this day don't know <laughs> what that experience would have been like. But, you know, I've, I've ran for like student government positions before. I haven't always been successful. So, you know, that I kind of equate it to that. Um, but, yeah, I ran against an eight-year incumbent. Um, she had been on the board for uh, eight years. And, you know, the unfortunate part about uh, the person that I ran against is that being um, young and being um, energized around the work, um, I expected that my opponent would just, you know, like, first of all, you're the incumbent. So, like, surely I'm not a threat. Like, surely you're not, like, trying to uh, fear losing to me. But I just feel like there was a, a missed opportunity for a generation to pass the knowledge to make sure that we're actually being productive in this work. And it was more, um, in my opinion, about upholding to a seat um, as opposed to like really sharing knowledge and wealth um, to, to, you know, to make things better for kids. Cause I did it not, my race had nothing to do with my opponent and everything to do with me feeling like I could be a fresh perspective and fresh voice for my students who I was in the classroom with. So that's why I ran. I, I, it wasn't about my opponent. Um, and so I just wanted to be a voice for my community. So I ran um, against an eight-year incumbent. Um, there were many people, including um, people within my own party, who said that, you know, 
it wasn't my time, that I couldn't, I wouldn't be successful. Um, that really tried to discourage me to sit this out and just wait until it was my time. But I had made up in my mind that I felt like my community wanted something different. And on election day, they showed that. They showed that they wanted something different. They showed that they um, wanted to get behind a candidate that represented them in a way that was transparent, that was like blunt, and they wanted a bold leader. And so I believe that my, my community elected me to do those things. And so every day I wake up with those constituents in mind that I'm fighting for them. And while you may not always agree with the decisions that I make on a day-to-day basis, at the end of the day, my fight is for you and making sure that our students have an opportunity and have access to education that will change their life for the better. And so that's 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 what I do. And that's why I approach the work or approach this work the way I do. Mm-hmm. What was the vote count? Um, it was like 52% to like 40 something percent. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once they declared me the winner, I was really excited. I don't think I've still to this day, uh, like took the moment in to like, wow, you were really elected by like your community and people in this district who believed in you and believed in the work that you do. And so that's mm-hmm. how I show up to this work every day. I show up, um, as if I was still, um, on the campaign trail trying to, to get a vote in the sense of like, people want to see you, people want to be able to engage with you. Um, and people want to be able to feel like their voice is being heard. And so I have an open line of communication with my constituents. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that it's been a, a, a fun ride, uh, with, with lots of challenges, but a fun ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've reached the top of the hour, Vice President Howard. I appreciate you taking the time, sharing your story, sharing, um, your perspective on, you know, everything that's going on right now. And, uh, just having the courage to to go out and, and put yourself out there and, and, and do good on behalf of good people. Louisiana is a lot of great people, man. You, yes. We, um, listen, <laughs> well, we get policy wrong. We get people right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a pl- pleasure to be here um, and to just share my story with your audience. Um, I, just, I just hope that the stories of people like you and I will... Um, inspire the generation after us to know that there's no limits to the success that you can accomplish and there's no limits to what you can do. And as much as America may try to make us less than, we are more than capable to do anything in this world that we put our minds to. And we can, we will, we've we've survived a lot and we will continue to survive. And eventually our communities will thrive as we should, as the black kings and queens that we are. I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, peace, peace, and we out.